Say amen. Don't you love it when we lean a little bit heavier to the old school side, especially when we get around uh, these holidays that we've celebrated year in and year out? Uh, actually, I hate to say it, but they sing a little bit louder when they have sung these songs for years. Just love the music today. Thank you all so much. Well, as we moved along in our series through the New Testament, we have closed out another book where we've now completed all of the Synoptic Gospels and started in the uh, Gospel of Luke. Sorry, I said that wrong. Finished Luke, started in John. There we go. And so if, if I hope you have found that each Gospel has taken on a little bit different flavor because when we read them uh, independently or even just portions of Scripture from them, we can learn a lot but you don't really get the flavor like you do when you read one straight through. And you can tell how Mark wrote a little bit different from Matthew and Luke wrote a little bit different from, from the others. Um, but they were all telling a perspective from those who heard Jesus and saw Jesus and believed in Jesus. And they were going to bear witness to what Jesus and the gospel, this good news, was all about. Well, when you get to John, we only made it to chapter 5 this week. You quickly understand that John is told from a completely different perspective. John is told from the perspective of Jesus speaking to those who would hear and listen. It is told from a top-down perspective where the first three Gospels that we looked at were told from kind of the eyewitnesses about the heavenly things that took place in their midst. Well, John... He tells from the heavenly perspective and what it meant for Jesus to come down to earth and the ramifications for those who heard and who believed. Uh, before we get into our text today, which will be uh, in the fifth chapter of John starting in 19, um, I want to talk about a little bit of work that I've been doing kind of on the side. So uh, as a pastor, you do a lot of studying, but you can't just study biblical stuff and theology all the time or you, your mind would just explode because it's just too much overload sometimes. And in all honesty, uh, when you study these things, these are the same things that have been said for years and years, so it doesn't seem like there's anything new. And if you find something new, you have to be very suspicious about it because we've been doing this for over 2,000 years now since Christ was here, so you have to be a little suspect of that new material. Now, there's more contemporary ways of saying these ancient truths, but, but uh, sometimes you just got to do a little bit different. So my staff knows that we've been studying uh, habits together. And so that's one of the things that I've been kind of working on, that and systems. So uh, systems we can understand from the fact that just how everything works together. Everything has a system. The school district has a certain system, and it's between administrations and teachers and how parents interact and these kind of things. Uh, one of the difficulties as a newcomer to a system that is already established is sometimes you don't know how the system works. You know, you would think, oh, well, school's school. You sh you've been to school before. You should know the system. Well... Did you know there's nothing listed on when you're supposed to take your kids to school here? We had to kind of figure that out. We didn't really know when the drop-off line. We kind of knew where it went and these kind of things and, and those procedures. Um, but there was a lot of little things that, because we weren't locals, and, you know, they said, hey, we're going to play at the junior high gym. <laughs> where is the junior high campus in this town? Because it's not over at the high school. You know, th these kind of things. I mean, you all laugh about it because you know it, but when you come in, this system doesn't necessarily welcome outsiders. 
Well, we can see how that has uh, bigger implications of just ourselves, but, but habits, you know, these are kind of like an individual thing. Uh, ha- habits are, are, are what you do without having to think about it. Uh, some habits we say are good, some habits are bad. But habits are very helpful to us as human beings because if we had to think about every little decision we made, our brains would probably explode. I mean, how did you get to church this morning? Did you take the same route? Or, or did you think about it? Well, today, you know, we got some rain, so sunset's a little bit muddy. I'm going to take a different one. You, you may have done that. But generally, you go into autopilot. How many times have you left for somewhere different in the morning than you normally do, and you are heading towards a place that you normally go? I mean, we do this kind of thing all the time. I mean, dropping kids off at school and coming to the church. Sometimes I come to the church to take the kids to school and go to the school to go to church. These are the habits that we're built into. But habits actually are more than just the individual. They, they get into these ideas of systems and overalls, and communities have habits. Uh, well, I was studying this one book, and it talked about uh, Saddleback Church, uh, Rick Warren. You've probably heard of him. And it talked about him when he was a seminary student before this thing took off. Well, he did a lot of research on demographics. And he was looking for an area where a church plant uh, could go. And he looked for a couple things. He looked at bigger cities and things like that. But he wanted to find a place where people were moving. So a place where the demographics were exploding. If you're going to plant a mega church, you generally don't look at Floyd Ada and say, that would be a great spot to start a church plant because we don't have a lot of people coming into town and if we do we seem to lose as many as we get so it's kind of a wash there but he did he found this this community in Saddleback Valley California and he saw that the number of people growing was outpacing the ability of the local churches to handle um, the influx of residents into the neighborhood so he picked that spot and it goes on through how he, you know, he, he developed a model that fit more Californians. Now, we go there, we wouldn't appreciate it because he, he went to, if you want to wear a Hawaiian shirt and shorts to church, come right on, on in. This very welcoming community. Uh, it was hard to keep up with Sunday school classes because they hadn't built a building yet. And, and you know, so they started meeting in houses. And I know sometimes we, we get nervous when anything happens away from, from the church campus at large. But he had to do all these things. Well, what some of you may not know about his story was there was a part where he basically had an anxiety attack as he was walking up to the pulpit one Sunday. And this forced him to retreat back to uh, where his in-laws lived and just stay with them for a while. So for over a month, he was just suffering from depression and all these anxieties. And you're like, well, why? Why is this man who's heart was set on planting a church and growing it and once it got so big that he just had these anxiety attacks well his systems he built into place his habits were based on him running everything and as a pastor you can run a small church and make every decision that the church makes you could teach every sunday school class you can teach every bible study you can preach every sermon but as it expanded, he was still trying to do everything. And even though he was bringing in an extra leadership, it wasn't keeping up with the growing demand. And so he just kind of had this panic attack. Well, as the story goes, um, he, he spent this time praying, reflecting, taking walks in the desert, 
uh, reading the scripture, praying to see what God would have him do. Because at this point, he, wasn't, he was ready just to give up that church and walk away completely. But God said, you, you worry about pastoring these people. He had this experience. And he said, I'll, I'll take care of the church. And so he did. He returned and he did something different. He, he started on this thing called spiritual habits. And you'll see that habits also are self-perpetuating. If you have these habits built into your life, um, and the good habits, they will propel you on. So, you know, if we want to use spiritual terms, we will call these spiritual disciplines. If you have these spiritual disciplines built into your life, they become automatic for you. So those of you who've gotten up every morning and had a quiet time with God, who've read their scriptures, you will know after a while, you don't have to get up in the morning and think, hey, today I'm going to read the scripture. It just happens because in the morning when you get up, you brush your teeth, you fix your bowl of cereal, whatever order you do it in, and then you go sit in a particular spot and you study scripture for however long you have determined, and then you go about your day. You don't think about it. Those who tithe regularly, you don't think about tithing. You get some, some money come in, you think, hey, first 10% goes to my church, there's first fruits, all this kind of stuff. You write the check out, you put it in the plate, maybe even you do the online giving portion, but it's just automatic. But those who haven't developed these discipline, these spiritual habits, you have to think about getting into the Word. You have to think about praying for others when you find that they're in need. You have to think about writing your check. And if you have to think about these things, you'll get up in the morning and have overslept. You won't say, hey, today I have time to squeeze in Scripture reading. It'll be one of those perfect mornings that you wake up, everything works, your alarm clock went off, you woke up, you had energy, your coffee was ready, all this kind of stuff. When every condition went right, then you will squeeze in your quiet time. But if you've created this spiritual habit, this spiritual discipline, it all falls into place. Same with giving money. If you have to think when you sit down to pay your bills, Maybe I'll have a little bit for the church. You've already missed the point. Because God has provided everything for you. And it is that first portion that always goes first to God. It's not about what resources you have. But it's about what God has given to you. And if you always put God first in your life, then prayer will come naturally. Then giving will come naturally. Then reading the scripture will come naturally. Then studying scripture will come naturally to you. So Rick Warren, when he went back to his church, he changed his philosophy. And no longer did he have to be in charge of every Bible study, every home group, and this. He taught his people how to get, go into autopilot on his behalf. He taught them how to have these disciplines, these habits. So when they met together, no longer would they have five minutes of, of praying and studying the Scripture and, and 45 minutes or an hour worth of gossiping and socializing. But they would put developing their faith as first place. And then that other stuff was just icing on the cake. But God came first over and over. Because he started this church, even though it's this mega church that's uh, very different than what we have. But he started this for a reason. So that Christians could grow in their faith. And those who didn't know the Lord could come to know him for the first time. But if you're depending on your leader for everything and your leader fails you, then how do you continue as a body? And so if you're going to grow, you have to entrust your people to have the tools that they need 
As a leader, you're to shepherd, but your shepherd's supposed to let your sheep grow on their own. You don't have to take a sheep and put his face down in the water and say it's time to drink, put his face down in the grass and say it's time to eat. You hope as a shepherd, you just point them in the direction of the, the fresh water and the green grass, and they do the growing on their own. Well, this returns us all the way back to our scripture um, in John chapter 5. Well, it's Palm Sunday, start of Holy Week. We could be, uh, take a diversion from this for this Sunday and next, but I find the scripture very compelling for us today. Because Palm Sunday is the mark of a triumphant king entering into Jerusalem. It's one where the people shout accolades and give honor to Jesus as he come in, but they don't understand Jesus. So in the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 5, we see that Jesus enters a town, enters uh, Jerusalem at the sheep gate at a pool, and he heals a blind man, or a lame man. Uh, but there was a multitude there. And so when Jesus uh, asked this man, uh, let's see, let's find it real quick. So Jesus asked him a question, and the sick man answers him, Sir, this is verse 7, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and I am going and I am going another step down before me. And another one steps down before me. Sorry, I could have summarized that a little bit better. But there's this man who's been sick for quite some time and he has gathered at this place in Jerusalem where this kind of mystical thing happens where the waters are stirred and the first one who gets into these bubbly waters are healed. And he's seen this before. He's seen people go and they're healed. You know, there's many stories about this. From our common understanding, we think it's a little bit of hokum, don't we? I mean, be honest. You read this, you're like, that's kind of weird. And it is for us because there's not a pool where we go down and we put our sick, and there's only one at a time that gets to go in and be healed. But for whatever reason, Jesus singles out this man, and he calls him and says, you know, what's the problem? He says, uh, you want to be healed, all this kind of stuff. And then he tells him, because it's a Sabbath, pick up your, your mat and go home. So pick up your bed go home and so we have this one group of Jew this man was a Jew that looked to the mystical side of God as this uh, big gumball machine that if you put the right quarter in and you did the right thing that this saving stuff would just come out this dispenser of healing so they had this image of God if they could just be in the right place at the right time then they could get God to do for them what they wanted it hadn't worked out for this man, but that's what he believed. And then you have this other group, this one that saw work on a Sabbath as a big no-no. And so as they saw this man, who had been lame, carried his walk, they're like, what are you doing? You're working on a Sabbath. Well, what's the guy's response? He's like, Jesus told me to pick up my mat and go, and I'm actually walking, carrying my mat. He'd be pretty excited, wouldn't you? And so he's doing this thing, but this one group you have this one group looking for the mystical power of God and this other group who had a, a doctrine of Sabbath worship of what's appropriate and not appropriate both myths of fact and then we get to today so verse 18 as we transition from this scene it tells us this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. And so we have these two groups that had their mind made up of what God was about, and that they were in the right, and they would even consider themselves righteous. One who was a victim of his, uh, 
uh, infirmities who look for God as this dispenser of miracles and that they would bring him back to a reality other than the one he currently lived and the other whose doctrine was more important to see what was going on. Because yes, it was the Sabbath. Yes, it was their day of worship. Yes, it was their day to avoid work. But come on, this man who hadn't walked in, what, 38 years is now carrying his mat and you're fussing at him? Shouldn't you be celebrating the fact that he has been made whole? He is able to carry his mat, which he hadn't been able to do before. But no, that wasn't right because this was a different day. And this man who claims to be someone from God or equal with God, he can't be right because that's not what they're looking for. They have their idea who Christ is and who the Messiah is. Well, Jesus in 19, so Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, and if you ever see these words, especially written in Jesus' word, pay attention to what comes next. And we'll see he uses that several times in this discourse. He says, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows himself, shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will, will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honored the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So let's stop there for a moment. So in the other Gospels, they're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Is he a prophet? Is he Elijah? Who is Jesus? And we see over and over again as the disciples make their way through. They don't quite get it. The Gospel of Mark, we see a very harsh view of the disciples and how much error they had in their life when they were with Jesus on earth. But this is different here. This is Jesus speaking directly of these truths that the disciples couldn't understand because it was against all the systems that they had in place, all the habits that they had formed, all of their preconception of God. And they didn't get it when Jesus said it the first time. And on Palm Sunday, as the crowd welcomes Jesus in with open arms, laying coats and branches on the Lord, welcoming him in as a conquering king, they still didn't get it. Because a week later, Jesus had been crucified. And the Sunday that follows is the Lord's Day, the day where the dead are brought to life, where Jesus himself is resurrected and makes his life meaningful. Because a dead prophet hasn't changed anything. It hadn't changed anything for these Jews who saw a doctrine of what God was about, and they were going to stick to it no matter what the world said, no matter what the Spirit was doing in their presence. Because they had the books of Moses. They had the stories of Elijah and of Isaiah and of Jeremiah and all these ones that came before 
that tried to keep Israel on the straight and narrow, a path where in their human ability they failed over and over again, a path that led to the northern tribes to be wiped out by the Syrians and the southern tribes to be taken over by Babylon, only to be rebuilt in the second temple period. And so Jesus comes. He comes preaching in a way that they weren't expecting because he claims authority. He claims authority with God. And if you're looking for the idea of the Trinity, this is a starting place in John's Gospel. It talks about the two persons of the Trinity. We'll get to the Holy Spirit as we get through this this, uh, Gospel together. But it talks about the Father and of the Son. How they are united, it says, in this love that the Father shows. But it also shows the distinct differences between the two. The Father is not going to be the one who judges, but that authority has been given to the Son. And it shows how He was given this authority. We see these two perspectives. We see on earth, Jesus is meeting the lame, the blind, the sick, and even raising the dead. In heaven, the same things are going on and on again. Because what happens in heaven takes place on earth. And the two are united, the Father and the Son. How how the Trinity works, our official stance as a church, it's a mystery. So if you want an explanation, that's the explanation. It's a mystery. Because we really don't know how it works because it is something far greater than our finite minds can understand. But in this scene, we see that Jesus is equated with the Father and the, the, the first person of the Trinity And he is telling them in their presence, and that is what these people couldn't understand. Because they can see a prophet coming from God, and they can see a Messiah like King David, who came and gave them their glory days, who united all the tribes, all the twelve tribes of Judah. But in their mind, they can't see how God would actually come down and dwell and be among them, because that just didn't compute in what they understood. And as you study habits, you will see that ingrained habits, our decision-making that we have determined is right, those are the hardest to change. Because once we've made our mind up about a subject, it doesn't matter the volume of facts that come in to say that we're wrong. We ignore those. We listen to the facts that confirm our beliefs. And so when we're in the area of fake news, you want to talk about that? Look at your own habits of input. So if you're conservative, imagine many of you will. If you like Fox Network, imagine many of you do. You'll turn on the TV and you'll watch a report of something that happens in politics. And if it matches what you already believe about the world, you will go, that guy's right. You may change to a different network and the same story is being broadcast, but what they say doesn't match what you believe about the world. You will say, that's fake news. I don't have to justify what I'm hearing here because it's lies. You may or may not be right because we know that our world is deceiving many. But you can see how the divide in our country has taken place. We only listen to what we want to hear. That's what was going on here. That's why people had gathered around this pool because they knew that that was a place for them to be healed. That's not how God works. There was a group who said, you don't work on a Sabbath. We've got our doctrine and we know the law. 
and we are righteous by the law as we judge ourselves. That's not how it works either. And so Jesus comes and he tells them that he is with the Father and the Father with him, that they are too united. It's too much for their brains to process. And so as in 18, they make it a mission to kill him. But there's a thing about change. And you, you probably know people who've made radical changes in their life. Maybe you don't. But many times it happens for a reason. There is a catalyst for change. That as long as the status quo is reached, we're okay even if we're wrong because that's the way everything is supposed to work. But every now and then, somebody will have a health scare. The doctor will tell them... Um, or they'll have a little minor heart attack or a stroke, and they will completely change all of their habits because what happened took place that will totally rock their world. They will start eating the right foods, exercising regularly, something that they wanted to do before, but they didn't because their habits put them in a comfort zone that they liked. But this one event, maybe it wasn't even then. Maybe it was a car wreck or a family member diagnosed. It was something in their life that a dramatic thing happened. It was enough to propel a change. Well, those we read in the story at this point are still getting it wrong. It won't be until next week when Jesus is crucified that the catalyst in the disciples' life is activated. Because Peter, the leader among the twelve, the one who said, Lord, I will go to death with you. And he says, no, you won't, Peter. By the time this is done, you will have denied me three times. And man, wasn't it an embarrassed denial? A little girl by the fire, another one. I mean, this wasn't a straight confrontation by the Roman legions that he denied. Because when the, the Roman legions were coming in and his manliness was at stake, he swung at that high priest's servant's ear, took it right off. Of course, we know he's probably aiming at his head. He was just a fisherman, not a fighter. But when those legions were there, he stayed true to his mission. But when that little girl asked him, well, aren't you one of his disciples? No. He denied it. Denied it again. And then the, the cock crowed. And he realized that he failed miserably. He failed miserably. He had his moment. So all his understanding of what Christ came to do was washed away. And when the resurrected Lord stood on that seashore and said, Peter, do you love me? We'll feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Take care of my, my flock. Peter, do you love me? Three times he asked Peter if he loved him. And his heart was grieved. And at that point, at that point, his habits changed. No longer was he looking for the Messiah who would set Israel back on the political landscape. But he was looking for the Lord who would redeem him. And Peter, the rock on which the church was built, went in a different path. He went in the path that God had set before him. Because he had now understood what Jesus' relationship with the Father was and what true healing meant. Because on earth, Jesus would heal physical ailments. But in that moment on that seashore, 
Jesus healed his heart. And so as we gather together and celebrate Palm Sunday, we celebrate the entry of the King. Don't do this on autopilot. Don't let your habits take you away from the significance of this week. For what Jesus comes into town as a victor, he is led to Calvary as a criminal. But he took those lashes, and he took that spear, and he took that cross, because that is how we are redeemed. It is the love of the Father and the Son that allow them to work as one. And it is that love of the Son for us that gave us Calvary. And it is the power of redemption that will pass us from death to life. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the significant of the time of year that we have come into. Lord, as we leave here today, let these words echo in our heart. If we have placed some kind of human structure in between you and your will for us, let us let those walls be torn down. Teach us to be your servants in a way that we've never went before. Lord, please take the steering wheel of our life and point us to the places we are to go. Maybe it's somewhere that we're familiar with. Maybe you're calling us to a place that we don't know that terrifies us. But our, open our hearts to the possibility because it is your love that gives us the strength to do your work in this place that we call home. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And now as we enter our time of invitation, if Jesus has been calling you to be your Savior, and you've been wrestling with this decision for some time, but today's the day you're just going to let everybody know about it, that you're going to put Jesus Christ first in your life, please come forward. Maybe you've been visiting this church, and today you're going to pledge your allegiance to this congregation as a brother and sister. No longer on the side, but one in active involvement. Please come forward. Maybe you're simply in need of prayer. Come forward at this time.